Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. You're li- <laughs> it's getting real. <laughs> You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin and I'm Thor. <laughs> you know, all the dogs want to be in here. We've got the whole peanut gallery. So this week we're going to be discussing the abduction and survival of Natasha Kampusch, part one. So I did decide to do this in two parts. Mostly because I read her memoir, which is called 3096 Days. Whenever I read a book, especially based on a case like with, you know, Amanda Berry and Gina De Jesus or Michelle Knight or J.C. Dugard, especially survivor stories where it's a first person account, it just feels like I don't want to gloss over a lot of the things that they don't gloss over in their memoirs, you know. So we got to get down in there. It's it's. This is going to be kind of a deep dive into Natasha Kampusch. And we also did watch a documentary. I think it was on Amazon Prime or something. It was really, it, we're not going to take too, too much of it into account just because it's basically just snippets of her memoir. And most of the things out there are going to be snippets of her memoir because it's a first person account. So we're going to get into every crease, nook and cranny of this story. And I got to say, this episode will probably be better than. My episode, the Jameson <laughs> one, because I may, might have had too much Jameson. <laughs> yeah, we're doing this during the day, and you're having a buble, so I think we're, I think it's good. Yeah, it's gonna be way more obnoxious. So Natasha Kampusch is not a quote unquote perfect victim. She doesn't glorify her childhood. She is brutally honest. She doesn't say what reporters want, and she doesn't talk about her world in black and white good and evil. Maybe this is why her story isn't as well known as Elizabeth Smart's, J.C. Dugard's, or Amanda Berry's, or Michelle Knight or Gina DeJesus's at that. Also, there is clear evidence of sexual trauma in the form of children in J.C. Dugard and Amanda Berry's case as well, or cases. Natasha didn't entirely fit the profile of an ideal victim, For a long time, the term Stockholm Syndrome seemed to be synonymous with Natasha's case. It's easy to shrug off a case if the victim empathizes with their captor, right? I had even heard that she went on vacations with him, a skiing trip, in fact, so I never really looked into her case. Plus, another gnarly Austrian case came up only two years after Natasha escaped in 2006, the case of Elizabeth Fritzl who was held captive in her father's underground basement dungeon for 24 long years. 
That is fucking Ugh. insane. And um, I, to my knowledge, I don't believe that Elizabeth Fritzel has ever given an interview or written a book or anything ever. I mean, I don't think I could. She's and she's got, I think she has like five or six children. Oh, one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to, Red Handed, they have a three-parter on Elizabeth Fritzel that they just did probably mm, about a month ago or so. So if you're interested in the Elizabeth Fritzel case, we'll probably eventually do it on the show because I, I love kidnapping. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I love kidnappings. <laughs> I, I love survivor stories, and that's one of the reasons I think I enjoy the kidnapping stories, especially if there's a first-person account. But I will say that the Fritzel one is very graphic and very hard. And unfortunately, we don't get a lot of the information straight from Elizabeth. We get a lot of the information from her father and from investigators and stuff. I'm sure she gave interviews to the investigators, but I don't think she gave interviews to the public at all. She's kept a very, very, very private life since then. I mean, I would too. Understandably. Yeah. yeah. So like I said, the Elizabeth Fritzel case definitely overshadowed Natasha's story. But it is wrong to downplay the horror that this young woman went through for 3,096 days, which, as I mentioned before, is the name of her one of her memoirs that serves as the primary source for this episode. So, again, I'm going to go into great detail. This is kind of a deep dive on Natasha Kampusch because, again, I'm taking this straight from her memoir. Natasha was born on February 17, 1988, to Lud- I'm going to try my best with pronunciation because I actually do speak German. Oh, here you go. <laughs> Buckle up. So I'm going to try to be as German as possible. Ludwig Koch and Brigitte Sierney. That's pretty good. Yeah. You sound like you could speak German. In Vienna, Austria. Her mother was 38 years old and already had two grown-up daughters nearly 20 years older than Natasha. Though her parents stayed married for quite a while, they lived in separate houses, and Natasha used to alternate her time between both places. Her father and mother were like night and day. Her mother was a straight shooter, a seamstress who altered clothes, and her father was a baker with a penchant for partying. The two of them opened up a grocery store before Natasha was born. After she was born, they opened another. Her adult older sisters helped care for Natasha, almost more like little mothers than older sisters. Her father paraded her around like his little princess. She accompanied him on deliveries and on trips to his Hungarian vacation home. Her paternal grandfather also doted on her quite a bit. Natasha calls this grandparent her constant, a rock, while her parents separated and went back and forth with her. Often, it sounded like Natasha was a bargaining chip and a guilt trip that each parent used to their advantage during their long period of trying to separate. The grocery stores her parents owned were used as a go-between for them. So around this time, she ate a lot of gummy bears and drank a lot of soda. (laughs) Basically, she could have whatever she wanted without any consequence. By the time Natasha started at a private kindergarten near her mother's home, it was a difficult time to be at home. Natasha said she felt misunderstood and unaccepted there. She didn't understand that she couldn't just do what she wanted whenever she wanted. And her mother would side with the teachers no matter what. Around this time, she started wetting the bed. It was a never-ending source of ridicule and pain for her. Her mother took it personally, saying, Why are you doing this to me? Thinking that Natasha was punishing her in some way. However, Natasha claims it was outside of her control and couldn't stop. Her mother put on rubber bed sheets and woke her up in the middle of the night to take her to sit on the toilet. She even began to restrict her liquid intake throughout the day. 
During this time, Natasha remembers being very thirsty and thoroughly unhappy. How old was she when she started wetting the bin? Five. Like four or five years old. And, and she didn't do it as like a toddler. It was like she did it as like probably a baby and then didn't do it for a long time. And then usually it seems like bedwetting, um, aside from, you know, being part of the McDonald triad, but it also bedwetting that happens like later than it should is usually like a it's like an anxiety thing or a stress related thing where it's basically your body like kind of dealing with some sort of yeah deal like mental yeah being out of control basically so yeah this was this was odd what if you start wetting the bed at 44 <laughs> please i don't want to know <laughs> <laughs> okay just checking <laughs> So on top of the ridicule and embarrassment she felt at home with her condition, it began to bleed into her school life as well. She began to wet herself during the day at school. Uh, the kids all teased her about not being able to control her bladder. That would be very fucking traumatic. Yeah. Throughout the day, the teachers would monitor her water drinking and asked her constantly in front of the other kids, don't you have to go to the bathroom? And they also reminded her to go to the bathroom all the time. Yeah, so it's just, it wasn't like their little secret. It was like everybody knew. <laughs> On every outing with her mother, her mother would bring multiple changes of clothing, declaring she didn't want to have to deal with a pea-soaked kid if Natasha had an accident while they were out. The extra bag of clothes was a source of shame for her. She knew that adults expected her to pee herself, which potentially made the problem even worse. This is around the time when her parents eventually split up for good. At five, Natasha was a taciturn and bitter child, a far cry from her idyllic first few years. During the breakup, her parents vied for her love and attention as well, which sounds really confusing with the backdrop I've laid out. On top of making her very self-conscious and ashamed, they also showered her with gifts and beautiful clothing as a competition with one another. This was all very confusing for Natasha. She learned just to not speak or ask for anything during this time. On a week-long school trip during her primary school years, she fell off some monkey bars while she was trying to blend in with the other athletic kids, and she broke her arm. She didn't complain very much, but was in excruciating pain. She didn't entirely trust adults to help her. Eventually, the pain became too much, and the teacher took her to the hospital. Natasha's mother and new boyfriend drove the three hours to come pick her up, and the boyfriend bitched the whole way back about the time he had to spend in the car because of her. This was a period of silence and bitter anger for Natasha, and she believes in part that these experiences are what helped her survive in captivity. This isn't to say that Natasha wasn't a troublesome kid. She sounded like a brat, especially with her dad that she saw on the weekends. Her father's new girlfriend observed her and said, now I know why you are so difficult. Your parents don't love you. <laughs> That's not a mind fuck. No. <laughs> you say that to like a six or seven year old kid? Yeah. Jesus. So though Natasha. And she's already having doubts, you know. <laughs> uh, so this statement stuck with Natasha <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. And it stuck with her inner captivity too. <sighs> I know. It's you, so you sad. just don't say that to fucking kids. No, It's just the worst. Even if it's true, don't say it. <laughs> When Natasha was nine years old, she turned to food to soothe her pain and loneliness. 
She had never been a slim child and had grown up in a family where food played a major role. I mean, they owned grocery stores and her father was a baker. Though her mother was the kind of woman who never gained a pound no matter what she ate, she was probably hyperthyroid, her father was, lar- was a fairly large man with a big belly. He was so fat that sometimes Natasha was embarrassed to be seen with him in public. He didn't seem to care, though. Partially because he's an alcoholic, I'm pretty sure, which I don't talk about it here, but eventually they lose their businesses because of his issues with money and alcohol and stuff. Ah. Yeah, like he seems like a nice guy. He, I, I will say you could be a mean drunk or you could be a jovial drunk, and he definitely was a jovial drunk. He gave away money like it was nothing even when he didn't have it because he really wanted to keep up appearances with his bar friends. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's they, they, he eventually ran both businesses into the ground. What kind, what kind of drunk am I? You're a, you're a working drunk. <laughs> <laughs> like it works for you. <laughs> okay. Luckily, you don't have this big belly. Uh, I'm working on it. No, 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 you don't. You surf enough, so. He didn't seem to care, though. On family trips with her father and his new girlfriend, they went to culinary destinations, you know, when other people go to the Alps for skiing or, like, hiking in, like, you know, the mountains. They would they would literally just go places to be like, I heard there's, like, eight good restaurants we need to eat at. There's this thing called a buffet. Yeah. I mean, so th- awesome. they're, like, basically. They, they should have went to Vegas. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, they're equivalent to, like, the people of Southern California, like my, my family, who, I mean, their destination was Las Vegas because of the cheap hotels and buffets. Like, until That's... they found soup plantation, and then that was their big. <laughs> well, until COVID too. Yeah, I know. Now Dang. there's no more buffets. I genuinely, so I genuinely. I don't miss... think your parents have left the house since they closed <laughs> soup plantation. <laughs> so, like I said, uh, they went to culinary destinations for vacations, completely centered around huge piles of food and nothing else. Additionally, surrounded by all the food in both of the family shops, Natasha got in the habit of eating ice cream, gummy bears, a piece of chocolate, and a pickle each time she went to either one. She would top it all off with an entire packet of Bounty chocolate bars and drink a large bottle of Coke. You know, that sounds like the U.S. food pyramid. (laughs) Um, Afterward, she felt like she was going to burst. In the year before her abduction, she became so fat, and these are her words, not mine. Um, I would say chubby, but she weighed about 45 kilos on her 10th birthday, which was about 100 pounds. How many stone is that? I have no idea. In addition to being surrounded by all the sweets and gaining a bunch of weight, Natasha also started to watch a lot of television to help her flee from her reality. Because it's also really sad, too. I always think it's very sad when, like, kids under the age of 10 or under the age of even, like, 12, when they don't like school. You know what I mean? They're like, already jaded. Yeah, she was jaded. She hated school since she was five years old. And again, it had a lot to do. Like, again, I'm going to go back to one of the reasons I think that I like talking about her childhood, too, is that she is trying to psychologically figure out. It seems like one of the goals of her memoir is to psychologically figure out how she was able to survive. And though she was kind of, you know, a spoiled brat growing up, getting whatever she wanted being able to go to mom or dad and he had a you know he had a vacation home and all this stuff like right and all these people around her that doted on her and two older sisters who were like you know dressed her up like a baby doll and stuff and her mom was a seamstress and make her these beautiful dresses and stuff like 
she got into this doting world and then all of a sudden it was kind of ripped from her, you know, and then they kind of lost everything. And then both of the parents really just kind of want to start their lives over. And it seemed like almost N- Natasha was some kind of hindrance. Yeah, that and the competition vying for her favor, you know, buying yeah. her things. And then it was like at the like, same time, like, you know. I'm not sure how much she was pissing herself at this at this point, but her mom, like, kind of like making her super embarrassed and her experience at school and all that stuff is just yeah. All she's got a flood. Fun. Yeah, she's <laughs> got a flood of emotions like going through her head, and I kind of wondered while she was going so like she spends a good sixty to seventy pages of her like two hundred and forty page memoir on her childhood, and again, I think it's to kind of come to terms with like. How did my childhood either help or hinder me during my abduction, you know? And I think that because she wrote this book within two years of her being freed. Right. And so she's still really young when she's writing this book. So I think she's actually writing it almost more for herself or um, than than almost like for anything else. You know, it's it's she's an interesting character for sure. Her captivity from what I have come across so far is pretty milk toast as far as how bad some of these well women... and that's the thing like it's like yeah if we compare her to JC Dugard if we compare her to Elizabeth Fritzel then yeah it's apples and oranges but it doesn't make her abduction any less terrible you know what i mean well of course she she lost her freedom for eight and a half years this is true i'm not debating that yeah, yeah, yeah. but she also wasn't forced to eat human meat and like didn't like pop out babies like gremlins, you know. Yeah, and well, and we'll talk. We'll definitely get there again. I think that's one of the reasons that Natasha Kampusch isn't like as big of a deal as just people are like, oh, that's not shocking enough for me to hear. It's an interesting story. It's there really is, interesting. She's very introspective and existential. Weird dynamics on both sides, and the, the we'll get into the guy, but he is. An interesting person, too. Yeah, and and that's the thing, like, and we're not going to use the term Stockholm Syndrome because she talks about how much she hates that term. And she's Austrian, not Swedish. <laughs> but also, like, we'll, we'll talk about how it's, like I said in the beginning, it's not all black and white. It's not all good and evil. And, and, and people, is. and people, but the thing is, that's what makes a good story. If it's like a, a concrete thing. I disagree. Well, no, no. I like I'm saying, texture I'm, in my story. I know, me too. But like in terms of selling newspapers. That's true. Like you want, it's almost like you want to hear the salacious gossip. You don't want to hear a victim be like, he wasn't such a bad guy. Because then it changes That doesn't it. sell. As big as like, you know. Yeah, and it makes her look like some kind of weird sympathizer. Which True, yeah. and which we'll talk about. You know, and again, she's very much a victim slash survivor in this story. So in no way am I saying that like I'm not trying to compare her I'm to I'm not trying else. to poo-poo her experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. So this is kind of just like I said, a lot of this is just kind of laying the groundwork to understanding how and why she was able to survive. She flipped through the channels aimlessly watching kids' programs, news, and crime shows that frightened her and soaked in everything like a sponge. Pea soaked. (laughs) Shut up. In the summer of 1997, one issue dominated the media in Salzkammergut, one of Austria's lake districts. Nice. Predominantly in Upper Austria. Say that again. Salz, which means salt, Kammergut. I don't know. Agut means good. Kammer, I have no idea. Something about good salt something. (laughs) The police discovered a child pornography ring. 
She heard about how several men lured unknown numbers of small boys into a specially equipped room, offering them small amounts of money. The men made videos of them molesting the little boys. On January 24th, 1998, another scandal shook Austria. Videos of the molestation of girls between the ages of five and seven were sent through the mail to molesters and perverts around the world. One video showed a man luring a seven-year-old from his neighborhood into an attic room where he severely molested her. Even again, this is ta- straight taken from her memoir. This it's is just what disturbing she said. how many motherfuckers are into this child porn shit. Yeah. Even more disturbing to her were the reports of a serial killer in Germany. It seemed like hardly a month went by during her primary school years that the media didn't report on yet another abduction, a raped or murdered girl. It seemed like the news spared no details of their horrific experiences. So again, all of this stuff is sitting like in the back of her mind. It's it's almost like predictive programming in a way like she's like almost setting herself up for what's about to happen yeah and it'll definitely inform her experience too the media reports were so pervasive at the time that they discussed these issues at school as well the boys learned to say no to grabby fathers and the teachers reiterated the warnings that have been hammered into the kids repeatedly at home quote never go anywhere with strangers never get into a stranger's car never accept sweets from a stranger even (laughs) thor knows this and cross to the other side of the street if something seems strange to you. End quote. Natasha spent nearly a page in her book listing the several abductions, rapes, and murders of young underage girls of that period of time that were somewhat local to her. She remembers fixating on a couple cases, the abduction and murders of two girls named Jennifer and Carla. She remembers seeing their pictures flash on the news screens, These girls and most of the young victims were blonde, delicate girls. These are the type of children that child molesters seem to prefer. So she didn't think she fit the profile, and she did not know how wrong she was. Only a few weeks after her 10th birthday, on March 2nd, 1998, Natasha had just come back to her mother's home after spending a holiday at her father's house. Her mother vowed that Natasha would never see her irresponsible alcoholic father again. Natasha felt powerless and annoyed. She remembers thinking about how her 10th birthday marked just eight years that she had left until she could be independent and think on her own and be in charge of her own life. That's kind of a crazy realization to have on your 10th birthday. She seems like she's very mature for her age. Yeah. Yeah. She's, yeah. She began to think of her 18th birthday as a magical date when everything would change. In fact, she had already taken an important step towards her independence several weeks earlier. She had convinced her mother to allow her to walk to school by herself. Although she was in the fourth grade, her mother had always driven her to school, dropping her off in front of the building. The trip didn't take more than five minutes, and she was embarrassed in front of the other kids. Natasha had been negotiating with her mother for quite a while, and felt like it was time that she be able to walk alone to school. She wanted to show her parents and the children around her that she was not scared. On the morning of her abduction, she vowed that she would make a resolution to be strong that day. She wanted that day to be the first of her new life, and the last day of her old one. She writes, quote, Looking back, it seems rather ironic that it was precisely that day in my life as I knew it actually did end, albeit in a way that I could possibly not have imagined. That morning, she got out of bed, put on the clothes that her mother had laid out for her, 
like she had always done, a dress with a denim top and skirt made of gray tartan flannel. She felt shapeless in it, constrained, as if the dress was holding her down tightly in a stage that she had wanted to grow out of. She slipped on her clothes, packed the sandwiches that her mom had left on the table for her, put on her red anorak, which is like a coat, and put on her rucksack, which is a book bag. She petted the cat's goodbye and slipped out the front door. She stopped and hesitated, thinking of what her mother had told her a dozen times before. You must never part in anger. You never know if we'll see each other again. She thought about leaving without saying goodbye, turned around, and then remembered the sadness that her mother had brought her the evening before, you know, restricting her not being able to see her father. She would not give her any more kisses and would instead punish her with silence. Besides, what could happen anyway? What could happen anyway? She mumbled these words to herself, and they became her mantra, coming back to haunt her guilty conscience for not saying goodbye to her mother on the morning she would disappear for the next eight and a half years. This whole thing, like, with her, like, repeating that mantra to herself and, like, all these things floating around in her head about abductions and, like, all this stuff, it just seems like she's, like, conjuring yeah. this event to happen. Yeah, and, and like, again, and that's what... She's very, she doesn't hide it. She like, you'll see, there's just more of it where it's just like, she is not a perfect victim. She's not helpless. She's really independent. She's hard headed. She gets in a fight with her mom before she leaves. You know what I mean? A lot, there's a lot of factors. On her way to school, pervasive thoughts of her family struggles crowded her mind. She cried and felt powerless. She wanted to disappear. She thought about being hit by a car and dying. I, I did that shit too, though. Like, oh, well, that'll show you. Yeah. I'll get cancer. And did you, you ever run away? Uh, No. I did a couple times. The only thing I did as a kid uh, that was kind of weird is that anytime fires would be near us, because I grew up in Southern California, I would pack a go bag. And it would just be full of, like, stuffed animals. Yeah, candy bars. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't allowed to have that. It was just, it was basically just, like, makeup compact and, like. Teddy bears. Sack and, of rocks that you played with. Yeah, a sack of rocks, basically. Like, this, this is important. But no, I, didn't, I never ran away. I never tried to. I would have gotten beat. I never was gone for long. Like, yeah. I think I made it, like, past dinner time once before I came back. <laughs> was your dad, was like, was your dad pissed? He didn't even know. <laughs> uh, she thought about how guilty she would make her parents feel. She kept walking and lifted her eyes from the ground. Her eyes focused on a white delivery van parked alongside of the street on the right-hand side that seemed strangely out of place. A man was standing by the delivery van who was lean, not very tall, young, and glanced around aimlessly as if he were waiting for something he didn't know yet. She remembers slowing her pace and stiffening up and getting a tiny prickle of fear in her. She recalled an impulse to cross to the other side of the street, and remembered all of the things her parents and teachers had told her about not talking to strange men. However, what? I was just going to say, he looks like he could have been the fifth beetle or the fifth Ramon. Yeah, or monkey. He yeah. could have been in the Ramones or something. Yeah. He's got sweet bangs. <laughs> However, if she really wanted to be grown up, she couldn't allow herself to give in to fear that easily. She forced herself to keep walking. What could happen after all? Even though she knew that abductions could happen and was bombarded by images of abducted kids from the news, she ignorantly didn't believe it could happen in her very own neighborhood. When she came within two meters of the man on the street, he looked her right in the eye. 
In that moment, all fear vanished. He had blue eyes, longish hair, and looked to be a university student from one of those old made-for-TV movies about the 70s. He had, a, he had a strangely empty gaze. He had a sheepish look to him, like he needed protection. And in that moment, she almost wanted to help him. Then everything happened so fast. She lowered her eyes to walk past the man. He grabbed her by the waist and threw her in the open door of his delivery van. Everything happened in one fell swoop, as if it had been choreographed. She doesn't remember screaming or even fighting back, but she must have because the next day she had a black eye. She couldn't remember the blow that inflicted it, but she remembered the feeling of paralyzing helplessness. Her abductor had the advantage, being taller than her and her being sort of plump and not particularly quick. Additionally, her heavy school bag hindered her mobility. The whole abduction only took a few seconds, and she knew she had been kidnapped and would probably die. In her mind, she played images from Jennifer's funeral. She imagined Carla's parents waiting to hear any information about their daughter. She could see her unconscious body floating in a pond. As images flashed through her mind, she asked herself, is this really happening to me? To me? What a completely off-the-wall idea, kidnapping a child. That never turns out well. Why me? I'm short and chubby. I don't really fit the profile of a typical abduction victim. This is a 10-year-old having these thoughts. Yeah, and she swears these are the thoughts she had. <laughs> the kidnapper's voice brought her back to the present. He ordered her to sit on the floor at the back of the van and told her not to move. She remembers him frantically punching numbers into his car phone, but couldn't seem to reach anyone. The windows of the delivery van were blacked out with the exception of a narrow strip along the upper edge. She couldn't particularly see where they were going and didn't dare lift her head to look out the windows. She remembered driving for quite a while, not headed anywhere in particular. She lost all sense of space and time and could only see treetops and utility poles whiz by. She felt like she needed to talk to him but wondered, quote, how do you talk to a criminal? In her mind, criminals didn't deserve any respect, so she contemplated between the two forms of German. Ah. Here you Here, go. I'll say this. <clears throat> the Z form, which is formal, like uh, like uh, Vigatus seen in, like it's it's a formalized, it's a formalized U form. And then the do, which is the informal, which is like reserved for people you know, like family members and stuff. Like just, it's not formalized. And so she didn't know how to address him. And we don't really, it's like saying ma'am versus like dude or something, you know? I was lost until you just said that. And part, I'm going to so. have to help you with some pronunciation down there, too. <laughs> Maybe I should just read this paragraph. <laughs> this might be funner if I do it. Okay. So she decided to address him in the do form. She remembered watching TV shows like Aktenzitzen XY <laughs> Ungelost. Oh, you got the Ungelost. It's Aktenzeichen XY or Upsilon. I don't, I forget, is Upsilon X? I can't remember. Ungolost, which is basically a show like America's Most Wanted or Unsolved Mysteries. She remembered how you had to provide an exact description of the perpetrator in detail. Absurdly enough, the first thing she asked him was what shoe size he wore. Yeah. Yeah. She should have asked what his social security number was. <laughs> I don't know if they have those in Austria. They have some sort of identifying code. Naturally, he didn't answer her. Her next question was, are you going to molest me? She doesn't really... Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking sad. Yeah, she doesn't mince words. She doesn't beat around the bush. 
Maybe that was a bad analogy. <laughs> well, yeah. So this time he answered her. You're too young for that, he said. I would never do that. Then he made another phone call. After he hung up, he said, I'm going to take you to a forest and turn you over to the others. Then I'll be able to wash my hands of this business. He repeated that sentence several times and agitated. He said, I will turn you over and I will have nothing more to do with you. We'll never see each other again. They drove for longer with her being scared of the quote unquote others he spoke of. She thought of the child pornography rings all over the news for months. She thought of the groups of men that would pull her into a basement and grope her while they took videos and pictures of her. She figured she would die. That is fucked up. Yeah. But again, because that's like, this was what she was exposed to, you know? At 10. Before yeah. 10. It's crazy. And I wonder if it helped or hurt her to have these thoughts. I think it, I think it hurt her emotionally because she just had this sense of doom the entire time. But I think it actually did help her to survive because she does do quite a few things that are very smart to kind of protect herself both emotionally and physically. And she she tries a few things, too, and she kind of, like, banks on a few things in case, like, she's ever found, you know? Yeah, smart girl. Yeah. They stopped in a pine forest like many found on the outskirts of Vienna. He made another phone call and exclaimed, They're not coming. They're not here. The kidnapper cursed himself, got out of the car, and ordered her not to move. She thought about running, but where would she go? She saw herself as a corpse in the woods, buried under a pine tree. She thought of her parents. She thought of her mother coming to school to pick her up in the afternoon. She thought of the woman who ran the program saying to her mother, but Natasha hasn't been here. She thought about how her mother would not be able to protect her anymore. She thought about her last thought as she left the house that day. What could happen anyway? She thought about not giving her mother a kiss goodbye. She finally realized where they were, and she asked where they were going, and he told her Strasshof. As they drove through Sussenbrunn, Sussenbrun, they passed by the shop that her mother had just closed only a few weeks prior. If this had only been a month earlier, she might have seen her mother sitting at the desk in the window. So she knew exactly where she was. They drove past the street where her beloved grandmother lived on and let out a whimper of sadness. When they got to the, his garage, the kidnapper threw a blue blanket over Natasha and led her into the house. She asked to use the toilet. When he let her in the guest bathroom, she observed the expensive-looking furnishings. And she, she has this thought, too, which I didn't include in my notes here. But she was like, yep, this is what I would expect. All, uh, like, all the crime shows I watched, like... They have really nice houses. <laughs> so weird. It's such a weird. I know she has these weird thoughts like she is taking inventory of what's there and like basically kind of judging him and like her situation. I feel like a lot of 10 year olds wouldn't do that. She thought she could maybe escape from the bathroom through an open window, but there were no windows. And so when she came back out, he wrapped her back up in the blanket again and threw her over his shoulder. She remembered trying to count to herself, trying to measure the time, have control over anything. He laid her in a harsh, dark, damp, terrible-smelling room after quite a bit of time had passed. He came back in and screwed in a light bulb. She was in some kind of bare and musty basement room underground. This would be her home for the next 3,096 days. Oddly enough, he asked her what she needed, and he provided her with everything that she asked for. 
even the little chocolate biscuits that she was no longer allowed to eat because of her weight. She remembers how quickly she gave into her situation, knowing that any kind of rebellion would be futile. He would not be talked out of letting her go, at least not now. She crumbled a few of the chocolate biscuits into her mouth and couldn't eat anymore. She was nauseous with fear. The kidnapper tried to take away her school bag for fear that she was hiding some kind of transmitting device in there. She realized that he was crazy at this point. What kind of 10-year-old would have a transmitter or weapon on them? A badass one, that's Yeah, one. probably her. <laughs> <laughs> he took away her rucksack and she cried. She remembered the little sandwiches that her mother made for her, her school things, the last things that she would remember of her old life. Looking back, Natasha realized that in order to survive that first night, she had to psychologically regress in order not to shatter. Her mind regressed back to that of a small child of four or five years of age. When her kidnapper came back into the dungeon, quote, I asked him to stay with me, to put me to bed properly, and to tell me a good night story. I mm. even asked for him for a good night kiss like my father used to give me before softly closing the door to my room behind her. Everything to preserve the illusion of normality. And he played along. He took a reader with fairy tales and short story books out of my book bag, which he had put down somewhere in the dungeon, laid me down on the mattress, covered me with a thin blanket, and sat down on the floor. Then he began to read The Princess and the Pea, Part 2. In the beginning, he kept stumbling over words, almost timidly and in a soft voice. He told me the story of a prince and the princess. At the end, he kissed my forehead. For a moment, I felt like I was lying in a soft bed in a safe child's bedroom. He even left the light on. It was only when the door closed behind him that the protective illusion burst like a bubble. She didn't sleep that night. During her first few days in the dungeon, the kidnapper left the light on all the time. She'd asked him to do it because she was afraid of being alone in the total darkness of the dungeon. Later on, she would read about how plants would shrivel up when exposed to the extreme and constant effects of light. Animals die and how it was used as a form of torture. It destroys biorhythms and sleep patterns to such an extent that the body reacts as if paralyzed by deep exhaustion, and the brain can no longer function correctly even after a few days. The underground dungeon that she was forced in was only about 300 square feet. Underground, she felt like she was going insane. She banged a water bottle up against the wall for a long time. No one came. No one heard her. Not even the kidnapper. That's how intensely soundproof this little cement room was. She also claims that it took like an hour. There were so many doors and latches and locks and stuff. It took an hour for him to get in there to, to her. Right. In that thing we watched, they interview a friend of what's his name? His name we're going to find out is Wolfgang Pricklapil. Right. Yeah. Pricklapil. <laughs> Thor likes that. He, this interview with his friend, they were in like an engineering class or something like that together. And this guy had his own construction business. It was or like something? a construction yeah. business. Like they would redo interiors oh, apartments. of apartments and stuff. Yeah. And so. Wolfgang asked his buddy, like, how, what would be the best way to soundproof an underground room, a room for this particular kind of sound? So his friend, like, told him exactly how, what would be the best way to do the most soundproofed room. And then his friend learned. Yeah, like a decade later. What 
he actually you like built it exactly like he he said, and he was pretty shook up by the whole thing. And it may have been the friend that he goes to when we get to the end of the story. So I think it's his only friend. It could be. If yeah. you see a picture of this guy, he looks like he might only have one friend. Yes. And I would guess it was his mom, but <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. He probably oh. ate his mom. No, but she's interesting, too. On the first night of her abduction, her mother called the police to report her missing. Nobody could explain Natasha's disappearance. The next day, the police began looking for her. Hundreds of police officers searched the area. Many newspaper stories were written. Helicopters flew overhead. Posters were hung up at every school and on every light post. Every hour, people called in tips with having seen Natasha in various places around the country and even outside of it. Her mother was questioned. Her father was questioned. She imagined that someone she knew would come rescue her, but no one came except for the kidnapper. Looking back, it, is now, it now seemed obvious to her that he had been planning the abduction for a very long time. He must have spent years building a dungeon that only could be opened from the outside. That kind of reminds me of Fritzel as well. The underground just dungeon yeah. room. These Austrians yeah. plan this shit out. Yeah, it's terrifying. Don't be a kid in Austria. Yeah. Over the years, she witnessed the paranoid, fearful person convinced that the world was evil and that people were after him. So he's a really paranoid guy, which also... He's I, not completely wrong. I just got to throw that one in <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. But and that's one of the reasons like she kind of felt like that about the world, too. And so she knew very early on she was dealing with a very traumatized, mentally ill person. And I think she like I, I, I think she feels sympathy for that, you know? Yeah. In the first days of the dungeon, the kidnapper treated her like a very small child and accommodated everything that she wanted to eat, everything that she wanted to have. He brought her whatever baked goods and hot chocolate she wanted. It seems very strange to her that this man fulfilled her every request, even though he had taken everything else away from her. They played games like Chinese checkers and Parcheesi. She even began to think of her kidnapper as a fatherly friend who was generous and taking the time to play with a child. She just didn't want to be alone. She also figured that the more time he spent with her, the more he saw her as a real person, and this might guarantee her survival. She also believed that the others who had ordered the kidnapping were just a telephone call away. She couldn't be sure if they were real or not. So in a sense, he was sort of her protector as well. The kidnapper burned her belongings, including the shoes she had received for her 10th birthday that she had so desperately wanted. She begged the kidnapper to let her write a letter to her parents, letting them know she was alive. She tried to slip in some clues as to where she was in the letter. After saying no for a long time, he suddenly gave in and assured her that he would send it to her parents, but he never did. They never do. The kidnapper gave in to a request for a computer and gave her an old Commodore C64 that she could play games on. However, he used the computer and the light as a way to keep her controlled, threatening to take either away if she didn't behave. She fantasized about how she would be found and even started to collect little things to prove that she had been there. She also figured out his name was Wolfgang, which is an ordinary name in Austria. After three weeks of being in the dungeon, it was almost her mother's birthday. She begged him to let her make a cassette tape for her mother, and again, he relented, but he never sent the tape. He told her time and time again that he had contacted her parents, but they weren't interested in getting her back or paying any kind of ransom for her, which is fucked up. Yeah. 
He told her that they were happy to be rid of her. <laughs> it's fu so fucked. I know. She never gave in, and she, she never believed him fully, mm -hmm. although her faith did often wane, especially because no one was there to save her, and she wasn't hearing the news of her search at all. Yeah, he wouldn't allow her, like, a TV or radio at this point yet. Her kidnapper tried to convince her that he had saved her from a terrible life and that she should be grateful for that. She never let herself give in and believe that, though. Over time, she began to adapt to her kidnapper like a person adapts to a new foreign place. She credits a lot of this to her youth and how kids are willing to accept new things quickly. Had she been an adult, she doesn't think she would have made it. The only way to survive was to adapt and cooperate. Eventually, her kidnapper brought down a hot plate and taught her how to use it and taught her how to make her own meals when he had to be away for longer periods of time. He also brought down a patio table and chairs. Weirdly, they had dinners together down there. Natasha even looked forward to these absurd meals with him, as they were her only source of human contact and the only thing that could break up the loneliness of the basement dungeon. On the 35th day of her imprisonment, the police came to Wolfgang Pricklopil's door because they were following up on a tip about a girl witnessing a little girl get shoved in a white delivery van. So they're going all, all around Vienna. Uh, There's like over 700 white delivery vans in this area. So the police questioned him, and they took Polaroids of him and his van, and they never talked to him again. His car and home were never searched, even though he had no alibi for the day that Natasha had gone missing. It wasn't until 10 years later, two long years after her escape, that in the week of a police scandal centering on the errors in the investigation and cover-up that Natasha found that she had been very close to being rescued a second time that Ugh. Easter holiday without even knowing it. On April 14th, the Tuesday after Easter, the police received a second public tip that would have led them straight to Wolfgang Pricklapil's front door. The police never made the second tip public. The tip was so specific that it even gave an actual address and make and model of his van. Yeah, and it, it like had a physical description of him and how he was close to his mother and how he had a penchant for children and stuff. And they never followed up on it. And like the next like police chief, and we'll talk about it more at the end, but the next police commissioner who came in after this guy saw it and was like, yeah, let's bury this. She right, yeah, it was such that. a fuck up that they wanted to bury the whole thing. Yeah, they were like, she's dead. It doesn't matter. Like, I think that's part of it, too, is they're like, there's no fucking way. I mean, most kids who are abducted are killed within 48 hours, right? And so just, yeah, it's just so incredibly sad. So she was fucking pissed when she found out about this. It was right before she published her book, she found out about all this shit. And she spends a lot of it in the afterward talking about it. So what do we think so far? I think that this girl is too smart for her own good. <laughs> I don't know. She's very... Uh, She's very headstrong. Yeah, and just too aware of how shitty the world really is at such a young age. Yeah, but again, like, did that help or hurt her? You know, I guess ignorance is bliss, and that's why I'm such a miserable cunt. But, you know, I guess it would help her because she... Had no illusions about what was going on. Yeah. And remember, the Germans and the Austrians and stuff, they're the nihilists, you know? <laughs> like, they're the OG nihilists and existentialists and stuff, you know? A lot of, like, European. So I think that, again, like, I think that 
And if this had happened in the United States, I think the story would have read very differently. But, you know, I think she may have had even a different childhood. So we're going to pick back up with the rest of Natasha's imprisonment. It gets a lot worse from here, just so you guys know. That was like the, that was the cuddliest it's going to get. That was the PG yeah. part of the story. Like I said, we'll pick back up next week with Natasha's imprisonment and the next pretty much like eight years of her life, eight, nine, ten years of her life in part two of this story. Spoiler alert, it does get worse, but she does escape. So there is that. It gets to like NC-17. Yeah. I don't think quite R. Yeah. No, it's R. Okay, okay, it's R. Not X. Thankfully. You can join our True Crime Dumpster Facebook group called the True Crime Dumpster. You don't want to sit down for this one. What's it called? <laughs> it's just called True Crime Dumpster. You can find us. Yeah, it's not hard. Follow us on Twitter, TC Dumpster, and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. And we got our first email. All the way from down under, Mike. Yeah, so we have yet to reply yeah. yet to your email, but you cute little Aussie girl that gave us the yeah. case recommendation. I think they call them Sheila's. <laughs> you, Sheila, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to you. We've just been, uh, there's been a lot. So hopefully you're listening to this episode. Crikey. Um, you can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and many other platforms. Don't forget, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Every review, rating, and referral helps us to get to a larger audience. Tune in next time as we continue talking out the trash. Bye-bye. Bye now.